This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Laws that mandate education for special needs students have not always existed. In the United States, courts only began referring to students with special needs in the early 1900s. At the time, such students were typically excluded from public schooling. In researching that book, we found the earliest case, apparently, was from Massachusetts in 1893. It upheld the students being excluded from school for being, quote, weak-minded. And in 1919, and I'm going to read you this, the Supreme Court of of, uh, Wisconsin ruled that a child with disabilities who spoke hesitatingly and drooled uncontrollably, even though he had academic ability to learn, um, could be excluded from school, quote, because his physical condition and ailment produced a depressing and nauseating effect upon the teacher and school children. Things began to change after the Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court ruling in 1954. Twenty years later, in the 1970s, the U.S. Congress enacted various legislation mandating educational services and support for children with special needs. My guest today is Charlie Russo. In our conversation, Charlie details the power of the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act and situates it in an international context. The IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, is by far the most comprehensive disability law in the world for students. According to a UNESCO report that I footnoted, at that point only about 45 nations world even had laws addressing the needs of educating kids with disability. Charlie Russo is the Joseph Panzer Chair in Education in the School of Education and Health Sciences and Research Professor of Law in the School of Law at the University of Dayton. Charlie Russo, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you. So how many children in the USA receive special education services? As you may know, kids in the United States are covered between the ages of 3 and 21, or students are covered between the ages of 3 and 21. Before the age of 3, kids can be served but not mandated that they use federal services. Students age out at 21, at 18 or so when they graduate high school, or 21, whichever comes later. So I looked just earlier today, according to the U.S. statistics for 2017-18, which is the most recent data available, a precise number of kids aged 3 to 21 is 6,904,332 public school students are served. And that's out of a total of about 55 million students in the United States. So what would that percentage be? I think a little bit, a little bit around 10%, I think. 10, six, six would be 10%. Yeah, right. Uh, so, and I've heard numbers as high as 13 and 14, and it just depends on how states count things and that sort of thing. And the U.S. Department of Education had a breakdown by 3 to 5, 5 to 12, and so on and so on. So I just took the broadest, right. broadest number. So it should be 6,900,000 6, all kids served. In the United States, not just public school kids. Right. So six million or so students between the ages of three and twenty-one uh, are considered or are receiving special education services. And what are some of these services that that they would receive? When a child qualifies for special education, or before in the process of qualifying under the IDEA, in order to be entitled to services, kids need to meet four criteria. Number one, be between the ages of three and twenty-one. Number two have a specific disability, such as autism, learning disability, visual impairments, audio impairments. Number three, need related services. Related services are those things that make it easier for a child to get through school. And reading part of the statute includes such things as as, uh, transportation, 
speech language pathology, audiology services, interpreting services, psychological services, physical and occupational therapy, recreation therapy, social work services, and school nurse services. So it's pretty much a one-stop fits all in a certain sense in, in making sure that a child can remain in school. Right. I mean, it sounds like that related services is such a broad category that it can include almost anything. And then there's some litigation going back to the mid-80s. It also includes residential placements. And I don't want to sound utilitarian or deny anybody's services, but residential placements can cost easily in the hundreds of thousands to a million dollars a year. What is a residential placement? There's a case from, I think, 1988, if I get the date right. Timothy W. Timothy was born barely able to hear or speak or respond to anything. And he could not be served, certainly in a home setting or in a school setting. So he was basically in a medical facility. And the school board in New Hampshire challenged having to pay for all of Timothy's placement. About 5% of the cost was educational, about 95% was medical. And the board simply said, look, we'll, we'll pay the educational part. But because so much is medical, and he's not capable of learning in, in a certain sense beyond some very basic ideas, and I'm not trying to minimize who he was. I never knew, for example, he had to learn to swallow. I always thought swallowing was a reflex action. Yeah. Um, but back then, and this is you know 30-something years ago, it was over $500,000 a year. And now they'll be up over a million dollars in some places. And again, I don't want to say he shouldn't be served. The question, rather, is because IDA is a federal mandate, can or should the federal government do more to help states meet this financial cost because the money comes out of the same budget. And I don't want to get into an argument of robbing Peter to pay Paul, and you want to serve all kids, but because his needs are so great, it does place a financial strain on school boards, and the federal government has not been forthcoming. As I, as I said to my students, I'm just finishing up a class in the law school, and I cover some special ed. In that class, I said, you know, in two years or so, when we're having a presidential election, I don't think too many people are going to be running with their about their placement or what their standard is on special education. I think it should be a greater priority than it is, but that's just the reality. So it's been a very good statute. I know you didn't ask, but I, I edited a book some years ago. I can't remember, seven, eight, 10 years ago, where I was able to get 21 different nations, 21 different authors from around the world. And I say this not because I'm American, but I think I could fairly take a step back and say the IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, is by far the most comprehensive disability law in the world for students. According to a UNESCO report that I footnoted, and I'll be honest, I haven't looked up to check how current it was. At that point, only about 45 nations world even had laws addressing the needs of educating kids with disability. That, that said, and it's a little bit beyond where we are maybe, but uh, Great Britain has a very good law. Canada's got a good law. Australia's just catching up. New Zealand is not quite where they think they are but they're trying to catch up. So there's a great deal of litigation because there's a great deal of conflict over exactly what kids' needs, what kids' needs are. Um, so that being said, while it's a very good law, even a good law could be made better. Right. And and what's interesting is that, I mean, it is this federally mandated law. It has these sort of very large categories like related services. And so in a sense, it does become very comprehensive. But I guess one of the questions I have is, has it always been that way, right? Like what, how were special needs children and students served by public schools historically in America? Um, not real well, <laughs> to be honest. But let me, um, uh, I, uh, I've got uh, two books, three books out with a friend of mine, Alan Osborne, who's also involved in education law. 
and Alan is, is much more knowledgeable than I am. I, I defer to Alan. But in, in researching that book, we found the earliest case apparently was from Massachusetts in 1893. It upheld the students being excluded from school for being, quote, weak-minded. And in 1919, and I'm going to read you this, the Supreme Court of, of uh, Wisconsin ruled that a child with disabilities who spoke hesitatingly and drooled uncontrollably, even though he had academic ability to learn, um, could be excluded from school, quote, because his physical condition and ailment produced a depressing and nauseating effect upon the teachers and school children. So 1919, 100 years ago. So 100 years ago, children with disabilities were simply excluded from public school. With, with the exception of a few programs in large cities like New York, Chicago, and Philadelphia, absolutely. But it, it doesn't get much better. Um, the IDEA, as I think we'll talk later perhaps, was initially enacted in 1975. And in a congressional report dated July 1, 1974, and I'm sorry to um, read some statistics to you, the Congress reported that 78.5% of the more than 8 million children receiving, needing special ed services received some services. If you do the math, that means that about 21.5% received nothing. Now, of those, and again, it's just lies, damn lies and statistics, 47.8%, less than half of the total number, received what we would today consider special education-related services. Uh, that 47.8% of kids, as of July 1st, 1974, the year before IDEA came out, 47.8% um, of kids received what today would be considered an acceptable IEP, that they're making progress towards goals. Another 30.7% received some special education instruction, but no related services. And another 21% did not receive any educational services whatsoever. Many of those kids stayed at home, kind of catch as catch can and, and whatever would happen. I first started my higher ed career teaching in, at Fordham University in Midtown Manhattan. And a couple of summers ago, when I was talking about special education in a class for people from faith-based schools, I threw out a line. Most of the people looked at me like I was strange. Well, although I went to Catholic school growing up as a kid, I remembered what New York City called 600 schools. 600, 600, and so on. And those were special ed schools. They were segregated for special needs kids. And I didn't really meet too many people who taught in them. It's been a while you know, before my career. But from what I've read, from the little bit I've spoke with people, and I don't like this expression, but I can't think of something better, so my apologies, uh, kids were essentially warehoused. They received minimal services. They, they tried to provide them with some elements of instruction, but on average, again, from what I've read, um, not approaching anything that kids would have received today. Right. And I mean, did it take from the early 1900s until 1975 for that to change? Did it take nearly 75 years? It, it kind of did in stages. In the late teens, I think it was, I think it was uh, NYU came up with the first degree in what we would call special education today. And right up until 1929, again, some large cities had some pretty good programs, New York, Chicago. Prior to 1975, kids with disabilities were described as educable or trainable, hmm. not as having intellectual disabilities. And I think that's a condescending term. I don't think it was quite meant that way, but I wanted to leave it in to show how using the right words sends a message about what's going on. So until 1929, some programs did pretty well. And when the depression hit, the bottom fell out. And then I grew up in, in Brooklyn, and I can remember being seven, eight, 
nine years old. I mean, I don't remember how young I was. My mom volunteered at the local veterans hospital for soldiers who had been injured in World War II. You know, we're only talking 10 years since the end of World War II. And so services were beginning to improve, but they were nowhere where they were today. And they were mostly kind of vocational rehabilitation right. uh, for soldiers and, and military personnel who were injured. In 1954, Brown versus Board of Education, which I think it's safe to say is the most important substantive decision of the United States Supreme Court of all time. If somebody wanted to quibble, I think one might be able to say that Madison v. Marbury, wherein the court gave itself the jurisdiction to hear disputes, might be more important because without that, he wouldn't have had right. a brown. But I've been fortunate in, over the last 20 or so years to get very much involved in the small but growing uh, international community dealing with education law. And Brown is well known outside of the United States. For example, in, in 2004, I was able to organize a conference with help, certainly from South African friends. We did another one in 2014. I don't remember the year, frankly, but I helped organize a conference in Amsterdam where Brown was central, hmm. maybe not in the theme. And sometimes people challenge me, not without some reason, but I still think it's fair to say that Brown ushered in an era of equal educational opportunity. I often ask questions in my class, both online and in person. Online is a different dynamic when you're reading answers. In light of Brown's promise of equal educational opportunity, I'll write or ask, what grade would you give the U.S.? A, B, C, D, yeah. F. You know, most people, and I'd probably fall in there within a C plus B range. We've made some progress, um, but we're not there yet. You know, we still have a long way to go. Yeah. But if Brown did not happen when it did, most people in education law, I think it's fair to say, would agree with me that Title IX would not have been enacted in 1972 when it was to ensure rights for women. Section 504 would not have been adopted in 1973, and the IDA would not have come in 1975. But Brown is certainly recognized as a catalyst, certainly in education, but in so many other areas of American culture, from housing to employment to almost anything you possibly think of. So Brown was the impetus. But again, as good as the IDA is and as hard as our system tries, we're not there yet. So what would you change? I mean, so, you know, the IDA actually has gone through multiple sort of revisions or I'm not really sure the, the correct word. They, they overhauled sure. it sometimes o over the years, reinstated it. So what would you want to see um, the IDA include that it doesn't currently include? Good question. I mean, they're all good questions. The IDA, to, to back up a second was last reauthorized in 2004. That's the longest since its first adoption in 1975. And frankly, I think Congress has kind of given up in a certain regard. In two schools, I teach in a school of education where the issues are a little bit different from students as they are from a law school. But having pretty regular contact with prospective and practicing school administrators from assistant principals up to superintendents in our PhD program, I think a major concern with the IDA is something we alluded to a little bit earlier, funding. Uh, it's got some great programs, but they're extremely expensive. Money for education is tight. And unfortunately, I think it becomes robbing Peter to pay Paul. And again, I, I, I quickly add that I don't want to be utilitarian by excluding one group over another. But the fact of the matter is some of the services are extremely expensive and those kids have a right to get them. But when they come out of the budget, that's kind of taken from the other side of the budget. So those kids get a little bit less. So I think that's one thing I'd like to do is get the funding up there. But as I, I used to teach at the University of Kentucky, where I was much more involved at the Commonwealth or state level, I, I've not been involved in Ohio quite so much. I do some other things. And I really think that 
counseling services should be available to parents. Parents fall into, of course, a lot of different categories. But on the one hand, you get the, the, the upper middle income family that has the brand new BMW and the baby seat in the back, and they want the perfect child and yeah, and yeah. that sort of thing. And they get a child that, in terms of the idea, has needs. Hmm. So I think they struggle and are often resentful even that they have a child with disability. At the other end, and, and I was kind of taken aback, I, I moved from New York City to the University of Kentucky in 1992, and I grew up in a bit of a bubble. I mean, in Brooklyn and Queens, it's different. And we lived in Nassau County, where there was poverty for sure, but I didn't live around the poverty in, in that sense. But when I moved to Kentucky, a number of students told me what I hear from people in Ohio now, that many, many parents of children with special needs don't really understand the process perhaps as well as they need to. So I think that schools need to try to do a better job to educate parents yeah. to help schools help their kids. Right. How you would do that, I'm not entirely sure. I, to make a long story short, when I was at Fordham, I did some work in the South Bronx. And the program, in short, was to try to teach mothers to help their kids with their reading homework. New York City in this program paid parents in 1991, I think it was, the pretty decent sum of $25 an hour to come to a, to a session. About a third of the parents came and they were all women. Not one man came. And I don't know whether because they were embarrassed about their own language skills or they just didn't care or you know all the above, so to speak. I think we need to get parents more actively involved in understanding what their kids have done by reaching out. The statute itself includes substantive and procedural due process protections that regular ed kids don't get. And I talk about this in class usually, that parents can bring a due process hearing almost any time they want. They can um, force the school board to bring in a third-party independent decision maker. And because that process gets expensive, I've heard from many school administrators, again, hearsay, but I've heard it from enough people over enough time. In fact, um, that when parents ask for a due process hearing, given the cost, they tend to buckle on, okay, what can we do to make it go away? Right. And the thing that concerns me about that, as you can imagine, is what I call the squeaky wheel theory. The parents who need the least help are the ones coming in for the most. And the people at the bottom end who really are kind of lost get lost in the shuffle because they're not questioning. Mm. What could be done about that? That's the, that's the rub. You yeah. know, that's, I hate to say it's above my pay grade, but one of the things that I'm a big believer in is professional development for educators. I taught secondary school, and it's 30 years since I lost last on high school. It was a Catholic school, in fairness. So we didn't have special needs kids, or, except for a couple of 504 kids. But I'm told that in many, many high schools, the, special, the high school teachers just don't want to be, leave me alone. I don't want the special ed kids. So I think we've got to get the teachers to become a stronger part of the team and then also do something to bring the parents in and help them to better understand. We have a, a booklet, it's online now. It, I guess you'd have to print it out. It's called, Whose IDEA Is It? And in the past, I've used it as a supplemental textbook in a graduate school law course focusing on, hmm. on special education law. I would think the average parent who did not go to college, even the average parent who went to college would have an awfully hard time reading that jargon. So, and I've heard students say the same thing, you know, we think we're helping parents say, here, go home and read this. <laughs> it's like reading another language for parents. Yeah. And, you know, I had a friend in Kentucky who was an engineer. And if you couldn't quantify something to four points after decimal point, he couldn't quite handle it. <laughs> you know, and, and there's a lot of those kinds of great decisions. So even parents who are well-educated, through no fault of their own or no lack of interest, are running up against a system that's really pretty different from what they're used to doing. And much more complicated than I think than they anticipated. 
And, and I got to believe that if you get parental involvement, it's going to have to help the system. Yeah. But the yeah. trick is how to get parents to do that. When I was a high school teacher, frankly, I hated going in for report card nights. Ninety <laughs> percent of the parents said, "Oh, Mr. Bohm, I'm glad to have your son in my class. He's a wonderful kid." You know, and those are the parents who came in. Yeah. The kids who were C and D students, you never saw their parents. And I think there was a correlation there. Right. Right. You know, and so how do we get the parents who most need to be there there? Boy, if I knew the answer to that, I'd be Secretary of Education or something. <laughs> So uh, one of the issues that fascinates me about the IDEA is that, you know, it does um, cover children from age three to age 21. Um, and I always wonder what happens to students with special needs after the schooling ends? Like, is there a transition to, you know, other parts of life outside of school? Sure. Another good question. The IDEA requires that at age 16, if not a little bit sooner, um, some kids have disabilities that allow them to function a little bit more highly than others. So for a kid who's got, say, a, a slight learning disability or a mild learning disability, transition may begin at 15 if that kid looks like she or he's going to be on track to graduate at 18 or so. So no later than 16, schools are obligated to, to develop with parents with the kids, if the kids are capable of doing so, a so-called transition plan to help smooth the transition to post-secondary to post school life. And sometimes that's to work in a, uh, in a shelter workshop. One of my daughter's close friends, in fact, it was her maid of honor, I think, her brother was Down syndrome, and they attended a Roman Catholic school, but the school had a program for kids until 21. They received some help from the city of Dayton. And I know they helped him transition from personal experience. He goes to work every day on a bus to a shelter workshop. Hmm. Some other kids, um, well, back it up. I had a student defend a dissertation a year ago, year and a half ago, I can't remember. He talked about students on college campuses with emotional disabilities. This recent student of mine, who was a school psychologist, studied university students with emotional type disabilities who did not seek help, mostly because they feared they would be identified and kind of shunned on campuses, you know, crazies or loons or something like that. Again, improper language, but that's some of the language that many of the students used in referring to themselves. They didn't want to be thought of as, you know, not a regular person. So they will have had a transition plan to help them deal with that when they come to university. Now, and part of the response is that once a student graduates or turns 21, and 21 has been interpreted as meaning the day before you turn 22, um, IDA services expire. However, a student may well be entitled to receive services under Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act. So probably just about everyone, I've never seen a statistic, but I, I don't doubt that there are every place abilities to provide them with transition services to make their way known around campus. The downside of that, if there is one, is that under the IDEA, it's the obligation of a local, uh, the obligation of states through local school boards and their personnel to identify, assess, and serve students in need. Under 504, the obligation is on the person in need to come up and ask for help. Nothing prevents me from asking you whether you need help, but if you have an emotional disability and you just sit there in class and it doesn't come out, I may not know enough to ask whether you need help. It's one thing 
if a student's coming into class and falls and breaks his leg, and for the next three weeks, he's got his ankle in a cast. Right. I can ask, right. do you need a chair to prop your leg? An emotional difficulty, I can't tell that without more. And many university students, according to this one study, but he did a review of Lit that said, you know, the same kind of thing happens. Kids get to college and they're afraid of being ostracized. So they're not taking advantage of services that can help them be that much more successful. And I hope that makes sense that I'm not just rambling. I see some yeah. connection yeah. in there. Yeah. <laughs> So one of the things that fascinates me as well is that the U.S. is not a signatory of the U.N. Convention of the Rights of the Child. And it's one of just a few countries in the whole world that is not signed on to this convention. Do you think that if America did sign on to that convention, that the protection of children with disabilities would change? Would in America? somehow enhance? Yeah, in America. Like, would this international convention actually improve the way in which children with special needs are treated in America? Um, good question. I am probably one of the most internationally minded people in the U.S. education law community. And when I go to Europe, I often get that as a kind of question. In Australia, I don't get it so much. In South Africa, frankly, they've got some other issues to get dealt with first. And in 2005, in a case involving the death penalty, which is not relevant except that Justice Kennedy pointed out that the U.S. and Somalia were the only two countries that had not signed on. And I read someplace that now says only the U.S. did not sign on. If you go back and read the history of the Senate, and it was under Bill Clinton, people also say, oh, it was, you know, Reagan or it was Bush or something. Bill Clinton was president, so it was a Democrat uh, administration, which I think was supportive. Around 2005 or so, sort of after the, uh, the bill was introduced, a number of Southern senators were concerned that if the United States had signed on to the document, uh, to the rights of the child, it would give up a certain amount of American sovereignty. There were even a couple of comments, because I, I, I looked at the legislative history, that they were afraid that if somebody or if a state used corporal punishment, would be at risk for international sanctions. And when I'm in Europe in particular, if my friends over there push a little too hard, um, the answer I usually give them is that I think it would have been nice if the U.S. signed. But in fairness, I don't think anybody can, can argue that kids with disabilities have been denied services because we did not sign on to the document. Again, I've written a number of articles about some of the documents. I think there's some good language in there. But there's language in there about giving kids greater say over the control of their education. Under IDA, as you may know, as kids turn 18, they have the right to control their educational records. Um, there's a battle not just in Europe, a little bit in the States, but more in Europe, I would say, you know, does a child have to say automatically at 13? Certainly as kids get a little bit older, they ought to have some say in determining their placements and what they're going to study and, and so on and so on. But one of the things about the Convention on the Rights of the Child and many international documents, there's lovely platitudes. They, they sound great on paper, but do they really get effectuated? Right. And, and you know, I don't want to get political and name this country and that country and the other country and say, what are they doing? that doesn't address the issue. Um, I think we give a pretty good level of services. Hmm. It might be nice to join in the international community for the sake of solidarity, but realistically, I don't think that would impact the, lever the, the delivery of services, pardon me, or the level of services that kids would receive if we had signed on to that document. Interesting. Well, Charlie uh, Russo, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. Really fascinating to talk, and, and I do hope that... Uh, that Congress reauthorizes the IDEA and 
puts more funding behind it. Well, thanks for the opportunity. I hope so too. But I, one gratuitous bit of advice: don't hold your breath waiting for Congress to act. <laughs> thanks very much. Nice talking. Charlie Russo is a professor at the University of Dayton. Today's episode was put together in collaboration with the Education Law Association. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on FreshEd are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not FreshEd, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please consider rating us on iTunes. It really does help. FreshEd's producers are Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. Fatih Akhtas is our researcher, and original music for FreshEd was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.